Father God, thank you so much for your word. Open our, uh, uh, unclog our ears would be my prayer, Lord, to hear what the Spirit would say to the church, to hear what the Spirit would say to the person who may be a prodigal this morning, the person who may be skeptical, the person who may be on the fence, the person who may be a disciple, but maybe pride is in the way, maybe unforgiveness. Lord, whatever the case may be, you know every heart, and your word always accomplishes the purpose that you have for it. It never comes back void. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Bible says, there's no creature hidden from your sight. Everything is naked and open before the one to whom we must give an account. And Lord, it, we're here this morning because we want to hear from you. So every distraction we brought into this place, every weight, every concern, may it melt away in the beauty of your glory and in the grandeur of your praise and in the power of your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Things that stumble, Mark 9, verse 42. Now, the backdrop, just uh, before we get into the verses, is that the disciples have been arguing about which one of them would be the greatest. And they had been talking about this on the way from, it appears from Caesarea Philippi at the base of Mount Hermon all the way to Capernaum, which is in the kind of northern part of the Sea of Galilee. They were having this discussion and Jesus was listening in. And finally, when they got to the house that appears to be the location, Jesus said, hey, on the way, what were you guys talking about? And remember the response was silence. That's always an indication that you got caught doing the wrong thing when you can't even give an answer. And mum was the word, and they had been talking about which one of them would be the greatest. And Jesus is going to break into a teaching about things that stumble us with the backdrop of their pride. Their pride was potentially stumbling one another, and Jesus was in a house at this point. That's what Mark's gospel says. He took a child, probably one of Peter's kids. Peter was married, by the way. And he brought the child to him. The child may have been a toddler, probably under five years old. And he said, unless you become like this child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You must, you must humble yourself. And if you think about all the best in children, there's no pretense, there's humility, there's trust. And that's what Jesus was saying. You need to humble yourself. Your pride is going to get you in trouble. Let's pick up the account in Mark 9, 42, things that stumble. And he says, and whoever causes one of these little ones, he may still be pointing to the little child. Scholars believe little ones either means a little child, like a young believer, or it could mean a new believer. And remember, uh, just in the context, it was John who said, there's somebody who's using your name to cast out demons. And Jesus says, don't, don't hinder him. He who is for us is what? Not against us. It's okay. We're not an exclusive club here. If he's doing the right thing in my name, don't hinder him. It's not just about you guys. He's got this child. He's probably even pointing to the child right now. And he says, whoever, verse 42, Mark 9, causes one of these little ones who believe or believe in me to stumble. The word stumble there is the word scandalizo or scandalon. It's where we get the idea of a scandal. It's where we get the idea of someone falling down or falling into sin who believe in me to stumble. It would be better for that for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Now you want to talk about a sobering wake-up call for the disciples who had just been arguing about who was the greatest and Jesus said, look out, watch out for stumbling blocks. 
In fact, if there's a person who stumbles one of these little children who believe in me and causes them to fall or sin or turn away from my kingdom or from my, the hope that I have that I bring to the world, it would be better if that person had a heavy millstone hung around his neck and he was cast into the depth of the sea. Now, a millstone here was something that was used widely in ancient Israel for the grinding of grain. And a millstone was a huge thing. It was a huge boulder-like thing that could only be pulled by a beast of burden. So don't think of a millstone as something that you could just do with your hand. It was something that was pulled by a donkey, and the millstone would move around and it would crack open grain, and in some cases, at least a form of this particular uh, thing that was used would open up olives to bring the olive oil out of the olives. And the, the uh, disciples were very familiar with this picture because when you read commentaries and you look at a little history on what's going on with the millstone, and Jesus is, uh, uses this in several of the Gospels, they say that people in the Roman Empire were punished this way. The Romans crucified people, and the Romans also would put heavy millstones around people's necks, and they would drown them in this particular region in the Sea of Galilee. This is the ancient form of the modern cement shoes. And if you know anything about that, you know that's kind of some mafia language. When they wanted to kill somebody, they would actually put cement on that person, tie it to them, and throw them into a sea, and they would drown. They had no way to come back up. And so when Jesus says a it would be better, better if a heavy millstone put, be put around the neck of this person, there's actually an ancient case that was uh, uh, com contemporary to their time of a man named Judas the Galilean. He was an insurrectionist. That means he, rose up, he raised up people against Rome and the Roman government, and they took him in the apostles' time, and they put a heavy millstone around his neck and drowned him in the sea. And when you think about the image of what that means, that means they put a huge kind of boulder-like thing upon him and he would be struggling. They cast him into the sea. He'd be fighting it and struggling it as he went down to the depths and darkness of the ocean. And eventually he might, you know, be found later bobbing with the currents as it were. This was a terrible way to die and it was a penalty carried out by the Roman government. And Jesus said, if one person hinders one child who's trying to come to me or believe in me, it would be better for them if they died in this fashion than hinder one little child who's trying to come to me. And I tell you what, if you're a disciple sitting at that table listening to that lesson, you have to take a deep gulp. Now, a person came to me after first service and said, Pastor Michael, who is the primary audience here? <laughs> I would like to know. Is the Lord addressing believers? Is this possible for a believer to do? Well, we're told in the New Testament that believers can potentially stumble one another by, uh, you know, food choices and what they eat and drink and days of worship and that kind of thing. But that's more secondary. I think who's really being addressed here, if you think about it, is probably the main target audience is probably Judas and it is probably the Pharisees. The Pharisees were trying to dissuade belief in Jesus as Messiah. They were attributing his miracles to Beelzebub, the prince of demons, and Judas was already being manipulated by Satan. He was a devil from the beginning, and Jesus said of Judas, listen to this language, it would be better for him, think of it would be better if a heavy millstone be around his neck, it would be better for Judas had he never been born. Wow. That's sobering. And Judas was there. And I wonder if Jesus snuck a look at, G at Judas when he was saying these words. We don't know for sure. They were all listening to the teaching. But Jesus gives a very serious warning. 
Don't mess with little ones, whether it's new believers or little children who are trying to come to me. It would be better if you died in this capital punishment fashion than to do such a thing. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16.5, and you all know Proverbs 16.18. In fact, we can say it a little bit snarky because we know it so well. Pride goes before what? Destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. We know it, and we know the disciples were proud at this point, and Jesus is trying to humble them. He's trying to convince them and show them that he had come for the purpose of laying down his life for others, and they would be a potential stumbling block even to one another. Uh, Turn to Luke's gospel. Luke also records this, and it's interesting Note uh, Luke 17, just go to your right, the next gospel, Luke 17. Note the context here, Bible students, coming off the heels of the teaching of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus, the poor beggar, ends up in paradise at Abraham's side, and the rich man who appears to be Jewish and wealthy ends up in Hades. Jesus is giving the teaching in light of him coming to seek and save the lost, He's giving the teaching in light of the Pharisees being really uh, refusing to believe in him, refusing to, to know that God wants to reach everybody. And on the heels of that teaching about the reality of eternal punishment, here's what he says, Luke 17, 1. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come. The word stumbling blocks there is scandalon. It speaks of that which ensnares, that which trips up. It even can, this word can even mean a trap set for an animal where you might uh, be a hunter and you're in the woods and you put like a piece of meat there and the animal grabs it and it becomes a trap and it ensnares him. That's the idea of a stumbling block. It's any impediment, any hindrance to your walk with Jesus. It could be an idol that's in your heart and keeping you away from the Lord. And Jesus says it's inevitable. These things are going to come, Luke 17, 1, but woe to him through whom they come. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, NIV, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. Jesus pronounces a woe on that person. And a woe is not a bridge in a rock and roll song in the Bible. Not a woe, woe, woe. A woe is a, uh, it's a word of pity mixed with judgment. We see this woe in uh, Isaiah 6, verse 5, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. The angels were saying, holy, remember? Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah said, man, I was undone. He said, I'm ruined. Woe is me, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips my eyes have seen the Lord woe is me you see folks here's what we need to remember God is holy God is holy the Bible says that our God is a consuming fire Hebrews 10 31 says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God now that's why the gospel is such good news You don't want to face the judgment of God. And Jesus Christ took the judgment for us. That's why he's upon the earth. And he's teaching them about how God looks at life. How God looks at stumbling blocks. In Ezekiel 14, verse 3, the prophet says, uh, 
God speaks to the prophet and says, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? That's Ezekiel 14.3. Bottom line, idols stumble. And Jesus says in Luke 17.2, it would be better for him, that person who stumbles a little one, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones, could be a young believer or a child, uh, uh, to stumble. Or one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. This is a warning specifically against people who try to dissuade faith in Jesus Christ to people who are new believers or children, or for that matter, any believer. I think of Charles Darwin. You know, there are some anecdotal stories that say Charles Darwin uh, repented on his deathbed. And you know, uh, Charles Darwin, the stories say early in his life he was training for the ministry. But he wrote a book, and that book tried to dissuade people from belief in the God of the Bible. This goes for cult leaders who try to redefine God, who, who lead people astray. This is for people who do misdirection with morals and confirm people in their lostness and say, oh, your lifestyle's okay, even though it's contrary to Scripture, and they say it for the sake of political correctness. This is a warning against anyone, anywhere, who would bring a doctrine against the God of the Bible and lead people from belief in Jesus Christ. That's pretty serious, isn't it? This would be for those who have sex trafficked little children, those who have abused little children, those who have done unspeakable, unthinkable things. And I'll tell you what, this gives me hope because the Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And sometimes, folks, when I look at the problem of evil in the world and I say, why did that happen? Where was God when that happened? We all have those questions. Just know, God has not moved and he is going to deal with those people who abused the most helpless of our society unless they repent. That is the teaching of the Bible. And Jesus gives a stern warning, and I think his eye is probably on Judas here, probably to the uh, scribes and Pharisees who would not repent and believe in him. And he's talking about the most vulnerable of our time, or any time for that matter. And he says, look, there is an awful end. In fact, it would be better for a person to be drowned by a millstone before they do any of this stuff because instead of facing Rome, they're going to face God. And God is a perfect judge. Now, of course, we know there's hope and there's uh, grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, but here Jesus is giving a stern warning. H.A. Ironside says, though he, Jesus, was the tenderest and most gracious man to ever walk the face of the earth, he had more to say about the awfulness of eternal punishment for the finally unrepentant than anyone else whose teachings appear in the Holy Scriptures. Close quote. Folks, Jesus believed there was a hell. I would not have the temerity to tell you there's a hell just on my own authority. I even have some struggles with the idea of eternal punishment. It's heavy. It's a heavy price. But Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven and he talked more about the reality of hell than all the biblical writers. And so if Jesus talked about it, we would do well to consider it, wouldn't we? Sometimes we ask questions when we come into sermons like this and we say, well, is there really a heaven? And deep down in our hearts, we, we may ask questions like that. Is there a heaven? Am I, am I gonna see that loved one again? Well, we also ask questions like this. Is there a hell? And on what authority can we say for sure that there's a hell? Well, Jesus believed there was a hell. And Jesus warned people not to lead the little ones astray. 
In Matthew 18, if you go to Matthew 18, the first gospel, we have another parallel account of this. Matthew 18 is a chapter filled with um, lessons about forgiveness, church discipline, uh, forgiving one another, not stumbling each other, etc. And here's what Jesus says. This is Matthew 18. Look at, go back to verse 4. Matthew 18, 4. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, there's the opposite blessing for those who reach out to little kids. I, I mentioned Sunday school teachers last week, but you may be involved in ministry where you support someone who's in a country, maybe a child, and you, you give a monthly donation so that a child can eat and be exposed to the gospel. Praise God. The Bible teaches that you're going to be rewarded for that. So this is Matthew 18, verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling blocks come. Now back to Mark's gospel, and we'll pick it up right there. So Jesus obviously has their attention and hopefully he has our attention as well. I think his primary audience, again, about stumbling people is to unbelievers, uh, even professors hostile to the gospel. I think of our, our college students who grow up in the Christian church. They go to a secular university and I'm told by them today, and maybe some of you have experienced this, that there's many professors who are hostile to Christianity, hostile to the gospel, make our young people feel like they're stupid and try to marginalize them because they believe in the Christian faith, but which, by the way, was the foundation of the country in which they teach. Hello? But today, that's what's going on in the world. Today, they want to marginalize the Christian and the Christian faith. And Jesus is going to give a solution about all these problems. Here's what he says. This is the solution Hang on, because it gets, it's going to get a little tougher. He says, and if, 43 Mark 9, if your hand causes you to stumble or sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. Now, three times Jesus mentions in these few verses the concept of hell. If you're curious, the Greek word here for hell is Gehenna. Gehenna. It's not Hades. Hades uh, appears to be the temporal abode of the dead. That's mentioned in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. Gehenna seems to be the final place, the final uh, place of judgment, the lake of fire, if you will. This is Gehenna. This is the second death. Jesus calls it, notice at the end of verse 43, the unquenchable fire. The picture here is a fire that continues to burn, but it's not a purifying fire. Here it's a fire of judgment. And Jesus says, look, if your hand's causing you to sin, cut it off. Now, let me say right here, I'm going to park here just so you guys are clear. He is not speaking literally. Okay? I want that to be as clear as I can say it. There's a story in the history of the church of a man who took this so literal that he cut his hand off. And he was pleased with himself. That's not what God wants. There's, there's a story of Origen, who's one of the well-known church fathers, who had himself emasculated in the light of these verses. I do not recommend that, just so you know. <laughs> I sure hope that's not what it means. And it's not what it means. Jesus is using extreme language, but the problem is not so much my hand. The problem is my heart. 
That's where everything, that's where all the problems come from. Look, you can go up on a mountaintop and you can put a robe on and just have the Bible in front of you for the rest of your days and you're still going to struggle with sin because sin is in our members. It, it's, it's a problem of the heart. What God is saying, and I think what Jesus is doing by using this extreme language is that in a lot of our cases, here's what happens. Sin that so easily entangles us, things that stumble us so easily become such a part of us, please listen well, that it's almost like they're our hand. We're so used to going things, going to things that stumble us. We're so used to taking ways out that are not the best for us that it's almost like that thing, that solution, that fleshly appetite, that way of escape becomes so part of us that it's almost like it's become our hand. And here's the implication of the language. In order for that thing to go, it's going to be painful. You have to what? Cut it off which implies that if you're going to be serious about solutions in your spiritual life, you're probably going to have to face some real pain in order to really get rid of things. And we all know that we faced the reality of this, that sometimes we've looked at our lives, and I, I'm a personal testimony of the first four or five years of my Christian life. I had a lot of baggage. God was pointing out things to me, saying, Michael, that needs to go. That needs to go. If you want to serve me, if you want to preach, that needs to go. And it was a struggle, folks. There were times when I would maybe not say it out loud, but I'd say, I, I kind of like that thing. It's like a little teddy bear, like a little security blanket. Can I just keep it? And the Lord would say, cut it off. See, what's at stake here is not just your personal testimony among people. It's not just the purity of your walk. Those things are at stake, but it is this. God wants to use you. Did you know that? And things that hinder you literally, are things that stumble you from being used in your full capacity. Look up at the screen. It's like a runner laying on the track instead of being in the race. It's things that stumble. What are those things for you? They may be different than me, but here's the language. Jesus is saying those things for so many people must be amputated because they become such a part of you that they're always your go-to solution, and you must cut them off, metaphorically, spiritually speaking. Now, in some cases, Medical doctors do an amputation for a patient. They may have a disease. It may be a part of their body that something's going to spread. And so what do they do? They literally amputate a part of the body for the overall health of the person. Here's what Jesus is saying, but he's using a physical illustration to make a spiritual point. There are things in my life that simply have to go. I can't play games with them. Illustration, you've heard it before, but here's what it is. You go to your doctor. Your doctor says, we just took a blood test and you have cookies and cream ice cream flowing through your veins. How often do you eat it? And you say, oh, three times a day. <laughs> Is that a problem, doc? And your doctor says, yes, you need to lose 30 pounds. Your health's in jeopardy. You cannot eat that anymore. And you say, okay, doc, I, I want to be healthy. And then you go down to Rite Aid and you be, buy the biggest tub of cookies and cream ice cream known to mankind. You shove it into your freezer. You can barely close the freezer door. And then as you walk into the, the kitchen, which I do multiple times a day, you hear a voice coming from your freezer. Hello. Eat me. You know you want me. And you walk by the freezer, something like this. Oh, Lord. Help me. Now you have just played a silly game with yourself. The best thing you could have done 
is not by the cookies and cream. Even more than that, maybe you need to chuck your freezer. I don't know. You see, sometimes what happens with us is we have something that's a besetting sin. It's a problem. It's, it's a growth in our lives. And instead of cutting it off, we put it in a closet. Ah, uh, well, this, this used to be on the dining room table. I will now relocate it because I heard that sermon and you've got to get things out of your life. It's going to have a closet now. Really? Yeah, 20 feet that direction. See, I'm spiritual now. You can go over your closet, kind of hide it, right? What's it there for? For the next time you want to indulge? For the next time you want to go back to your sin? You see, you haven't cut it off. You just put it away for the next time you want to fall. And all God's people said, ouch. Ouch. I know. I'm with you. I got to wrestle with these things all week before I preach it to you. Anyway. Here's the point. There are things in our lives that simply need to go. One writer says, whatever in one's life tempts one to be untrue to God, must be discarded promptly and decisively even as a surgeon amputates a hand or leg in order to save a life. By cutting off or cutting out harmful practices and the things that bring us to those practices, this is the way we deal with sin. You can take, please hear me, no halfway measures with sin. You can't. Sin's always crouching at your door. If you give, a, if you give sin an inch, it will become the ruler. Everybody with me? This is how it works. And so those things just simply need to go. And Jesus says, look, when you get rid of those things, here's the good news. I'm going to give you things a thousand times better. I'm going to give you a, a, a comfy pillow to sleep on at night. I'm gonna, you're not going to have to go through that guilt and repentance and thing that you do every time you fall to that same thing. Just cut it off. I want you to be free. I want you to be up on the track. I want you to be able to run in the way that I've called you to run. So chuck it. In the book of Acts, there was a great revival. Paul went preaching in Acts 19 in Ephesus. Ephesus was a city that was swimming in all kinds of occult, magical practices, sexual sin, you name it, it was there. And so Paul goes and preaches, and the name of Jesus is showing power. People are getting healed. And there were these seven sons of Sceva. They were sons of a Jewish high priest. And so they, they knew the name of Jesus was powerful. So they started to try to use it in their exorcism business. And they ran into a case with this guy possessed. And they said, uh, hey you, in the name of, of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out of that man. And the spirit responded in the man. And he said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And the, the Bible says in Acts 19, you can read this later, it's verses like 15 through 20, that the spirit within the man jumped the seven sons of Sceva, all seven, and here's a loose paraphrase, and beat the stuffings out of them. And they ran out of the house naked and bleeding, all seven of them. This, and there's sometimes, you know, uh, supernatural strength in these, some of these cases. And the spirit beat the tar out of these guys, and they ran out of the house, these Jewish exorcists, naked and bleeding. News at 11. Here's the cover photo for the newspaper. Seven sons of Sceva bleeding. Ooh. And it says that everybody was in fear in the place, and the word of God was prevailing to such an extent the people were taking their magic books, their occult books, spells and all that, and they took them and they threw them in a fire before all the people. 
they actually burned their occult books. And the Bible says that the value of the books was 50,000 pieces of silver. Can you imagine? I'm sure there were some people at the fire going, I could sell this to a friend. <laughs> Maybe not a friend, but I, <laughs> I could get money for this. You ever had that moment in your life where the Lord's confronted you about some old CDs or movies in your collection and you have a tough time getting rid of them and you almost got to have like a ceremony? Then you think to yourself, you know, I could sell this to one of my friends. I know it stumbles me, but, you know, it would make me a little bit of money. <laughs> That's not the best of us, right? No, they burned them. They showed the seriousness about their decision to follow Christ. And Jesus says, this place that I'm talking about, look at verse 44, Mark 9, is where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Now, some of you are going to notice that's in brackets because there's a manuscript stream or family where that is not in the manuscripts. There's a variation here, but um, the idea is certainly there, and we'll talk about that in a second. Verse 45, Mark 9. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast, once again, Jesus says, into hell. Now, when you look at the foot and you study the Bible, and many of you who have read through Proverbs and Psalms, you know the foot becomes kind of a picture of your path in life. In fact, Psalm 121, verse 3 says, God will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Proverbs 4, 26 says, Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Proverbs 4, 27. Turn your foot from evil. So your hand has this picture of kind of what you do, and your foot is where you go. And so your foot becomes this picture of where your feet take you, and you want your feet to keep, on, keep you on the path, right? To take you to good, godly, edifying places and not to take you to places where you don't belong. So a guy goes in and he, he sits with his pastor and he, he says, Pastor, I, I, I'm going to confess this. I've really been struggling with alcoholism. This has been a problem for a while. And look, I, I get off work and I'm trying. I, I had some sobriety and it was going good for a while. But I was walking home from work and I pass by the back door of this bar. And I'm walking down this alley and I see my buddies in there and they're knocking back a cold one. And I think, oh, can't be so bad. Maybe I'll just have one. And I end up in the bar, and I can't have just one. So I knock back, you know, five or six beers, and, and all of a sudden I find myself intoxicated. Pastor, I'm having a problem. My feet are taking me to evil. What should I do? And so the pastor says, well, let's get this straight. So you get off work, and you walk down this back alley, and the door of the bar is open, and you see your buddies in there, and the pool table, and the beer, and you get drawn in, and you end up drinking too much, right? Right. Pastor says, okay, this is heavy now. See if you can stay with me. Walk down a different street. Do you need to write that down? You see, folks, sometimes we have met the enemy, and it's us. What a lot of people attribute to the spirit of this and the spirit of that, look, uh, there's spiritual warfare, no doubt. But look, when people talk, start talking about spirits being related to tobacco and alcoholism, I'll tell you this, the only spirits there are the ones within the bottle. The one that is taking your feet there is you. These are called works of the flesh. Now, there is a battle, and the devil does use those things to try to stumble us, but the solutions are very clear. Change the course of your feet. This is captured by cutting off, or if you want to call it a redirect. 
where their worm does not die, verse 46, and the fire is not quenched. And then finally, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye. You might write in your margin there with an eye patch on, just if you're a pirate fan. Just kidding, I thought you might need a little humor, though it wasn't funny. Anyway, then having two eyes to be cast into hell. The final thing, it's what you do, it's where you go, and it's what you look at. Again, this is not literal. This is a spiritual picture. This is a metaphorical picture. This is all about what you look at and what you keep your gaze on. You know, we have a society right now that is absolutely devastated by pornographic images that are all over the place. It's going younger and younger and younger. And there are people that are being ensnared with their eyes. And look, you go, you go to the grocery store now and you try to buy some groceries at a, what seems to be just the average grocery store and there's things in front of you that you don't want to look at. And what you got to do is decide what your eyes are going to actually fasten on. It's not the first look that gets most of us in trouble. Some things we just simply can't avoid. We might be changing channels and there's something there. We might be driving down a freeway and there's a billboard there. We might be on our computer and all of a sudden something comes up. It's what you do afterwards with that that really matters. It's what you do with what you're going to gaze upon and what you're going to allow to come in. And look, any of you who have struggled in this particular area with images that are not pleasing to God and that are corrupt, man, they come back. They'll flash back at the most inopportune times. You don't even want to go there. And Jesus says, don't go there. Don't look upon that stuff. Tear it out. You can think of the idea here using the metaphor of just get rid of it. Tear it up, burn it, do whatever you need to do to make sure that you don't go there again. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, Pastor Michael, so Jesus is giving these stern warnings. What do you do if you've messed up? What do you do if you feel like you've stumbled other people? What do you do? Well, here's the good news, and Pastor Chris said this, every day as a Christian is a new day for me. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. And where you can make amends, where you've made mistakes, then you make amends. What you can control, you try to make amends for. But what really matters, brothers and sisters, is what you decide to do now with your Christian life. Paul says, I'm not looking behind. I'm pressing what? I'm pressing ahead. And that's a running image. That's an Olympic image. We could spend all day long looking back here and going, oh, I wish I, oh, I, wish I, would, have t- I, wish I would have passed that guy when I had the... You can do that all day long, but that's not going to change what's behind you in the race. What you need to worry about is what's in front of you. Amen? And Jesus is the one who gives new beginnings. He's the one whose mercies are new. How often? Every morning. And as Pastor Chris likes to say, that's good because I exhaust his mercies usually the day before. So it's good (laughs) that they're new every morning. You see, it's all about what we decide to do now. Each day is a day to decide who you're going to live for and how you're going to live. And when Jesus talks about these realities, he even goes in in Luke 17 and talks about forgiveness. He says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And remember Peter, right on the heels of this difficult teaching, you know, he thought he was doing good. Jesus says, if he sins against you seven times a day, returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, then forgive him. And Peter Thought he was doing good. And, but after this teaching, the apostles respond, Lord, increase our faith. 
And Jesus says, look, I don't say 70 times. I say what? 70 times 7. Now, how much is that, mathematicians? 490. So in the 491st time somebody messes up, you don't have to forgive them. Just so you know. Just kidding. What Jesus is using is an inexhaustible number. By using sevens, he's using a number that is complete, inexhaustible. That's how God deals with us, and that's how we are called to deal with one another. Now take one more peek back in Luke 17. I want to show you this image. Right after Jesus preaches about stumbling blocks and forgiveness, here's what he says. Luke 17, look at verse 6. The apostles say in verse 5, increase our faith. In verse 6, the Lord said, Luke 17, 6, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, I don't think Jesus is talking about the faith of a mustard seed, by the way, is the smallest garden seed in Israel, almost imperceptible to the eye. I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, if you had enough faith, you could just yell at that tree, be uprooted in the name. And I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is that roots that have planted deep in your heart, please hear me, unforgiveness that's gone down deep, ways of living that you can't let go of. If you had faith as a mustard seed, the Lord would uproot that out of your life and it would be no longer a root of bitterness. It would no longer be a root of a trigger that you tend to go back to. It would, if you just had a little bit of faith, listen, Jesus says that tree that's gone down deep in your life would be uprooted and it would be cast into the sea of forgetfulness. That is the beauty of what Jesus is saying here. Finally, in verse 10, Luke 17, he says, so you too, when you do all these things which are commanded you, Say we are unworthy slaves. We've done only that which we ought to have done. Schindler, famous, uh, go back to Mark, who was famous for trying to get Jews out of Nazi Germany, said these famous words. He said, look, there's no credit that I deserve. I am unworthy. He says, I should have done more. I really only did what I ought to have done. Now Jesus says in Mark 9:48, as we sum it up, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So he's taught about this place where people who lead others astray potentially can end up. And he says there the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. Now the place that Jesus is referring to, just like the millstone picture is so graphic in the minds of the disciples, is the literal place in their time. It was known as the Valley of Hinnom. It was the place that became the garbage dump in Israel. And they had what's been called a perpetual fire. They would burn the garbage there. And it was always a sight within your eyes uh, to see if you were anywhere in Israel because the fire would go up continually. And they would put, it was like the modern dump. They would put garbage. They would put carcasses of dead animals there. And they even say that in Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom, there were bodies of people who were executed by Rome and they didn't want to give them a a uh, uh, burial nobody really cared if you will and so they were even thrown in Gehenna and there were dead bodies there garbage a perpetual fire and maggots and worms sorry to gross you out before lunch but here it is they were kind of all over the place and they were constantly filled on what was put there they always had a food supply and this particular image is actually borrowed from Isaiah 66 24 just write it down for your notes it's the last verse of the book of Isaiah. 
Now, if you've studied Isaiah, Isaiah is all about salvation. It's a book about salvation. All these prophecies about the coming Messiah. But in the millennial reign of Jesus, the thousand-year reign of Christ, this image is there, and it is quite possible that something like this will exist in the millennial kingdom for us to remember what we were saved from. And the disciples, when they heard these kinds of images, I mean, this, this would be right there on the forefront of their minds. They knew these things quite well. And Jesus, of course, is highlighting the fact that God is holy. Final verses. For everyone will be salted with fire. You might wonder, what does that mean? Salted with fire is an image from Leviticus 2.13. If you read study Bibles on this, um, here's what it says, that when they, when they were going to offer a burnt offering, they would salt it. And some of you say, well, why? I've asked that question. I read Leviticus 2.13. I say, why did they put salt on the sacrifices? And the answer is, no scholars really know. They don't know. Except that, it may be that for God, since a right sacrifice became what? A sweet-smelling aroma to God that God liked the seasoning. And so they would salt the sacrifices, and it would become a pleasing aroma to God. And here's the image. Everyone here is a personal application. We're all living sacrifices, and we need to be salted. We need to be purified, if you will, in the fire. And Jesus says salt is good, but if the salt, verse 50, becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be what? At peace with one another. Stop arguing is this point. Salt is good, but what if salt becomes unsalty? How many of you are salt fans? Just raise up your hand. How many of you are and you didn't want to confess it? How many of you are being nudged by a loved one who's telling you the doctor said to get the salt out of your life? Salt on french fries, right? Imagine if you had a salt shaker there, and if you've ever messed with your friends, you loosen the calf, right? Ruin their french fries. But we don't want to do that because we're supposed to let everything we do be done in love. But anyway... But imagine that you put it, your fries are kind of bland. You go, that needs salt. You put salt on it, a little bit more salt, and then you figure out it's not changing the taste of your fry. Then you take one of the granules and go, you know what? That salt's not salty. What do you do with non-salty salt? I don't know. How do you fix it? Do you make it hang out with salty salt for a while? Maybe. How do you make unsalty salt salty again say that five times fast <laughs> this is like in the in the modern uh, times this is like having a refrigerator that's not cold your fridge is supposed to preserve food fruits vegetables meats but if you're have you ever had a power outage in your house and the the fridge is not cold so you tell all of your family don't open the fridge because you got to keep things cold till they get this power on been off for 45 minutes. And if you have teenagers in your house, they can't do it. They have to look every 2.5 seconds into the fridge just to see if something new has arrived. Hey, you eat around here? You're like, you just ate 10 minutes ago. Close the fridge. <laughs> you know, I made a discovery. This is later in life. Some of you will very much relate to this. I used to always be perplexed. My mom and grandma would all, always say, Close the door, the air conditioning's on. In or out, out or in. And you're like, jeez, they're so cranky. How much air is going to flow out in the time that I, I did this? Shut the door. There's absolutely no application to this sermon. <laughs> Other than 
I have found myself in the chair doing the same thing. Close the door. What are you doing? Sad. <laughs> I need to be seasoned. Have my speech seasoned with salt, Colossians 4, 6. Anyway, we digress. We are called to be a preserving influence in a decaying world. You know, they used to pay soldiers in salt. They used to say, that's where the saying came, that person's not worth their salt. They would actually pay you in salt because salt was absolutely critical in the ancient world. If you didn't have salt, you couldn't preserve your food. No refrigeration back in the day. No ice cubes and that kind of thing. And Jesus says, Luke 14, 34 and 35, and we're done. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or the manure pile, and it is thrown out. And then Jesus says, Luke 14, 35, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, as the worship team comes on up, we'll do a closing song here, Pastor. Um, I want to tell you about an article I just put on the website. My lovely wife actually just did it. But it was a teaching I just gave recently in a men's breakfast, and a lot of the guys were asking for access to it. So here's how you can get to it. Here's the article. It's called, What to Do When You Mess Up Instead of Suit Up. It's kind of a play on the armor of God. What to do when you stumble and sin instead of suiting up is the idea of the article. You go to our website, go under Bible Studies, Articles, and you'll get to the article. I would highly encourage you to read this, maybe even today. Ten points, rapid fire, go and check the article. What do you do when you've messed up instead of suiting up? Number one, own it. Don't excuse it. Number two, know that your sin is first and foremost vertical and get right with God. That, that was actually 1A. Number two is repent, confess it, and forsake it. Recognition is not the same as repentance. Esau recognized his blunder, but he didn't repent. Number three, see why you fell in the first place and learn from it, which includes eliminating stumbling blocks and triggers from your life. Ask yourself, what happened here, and how can I cut that off so I don't do that again? Number four, rest in God's grace and forgiveness. If you're in Christ, you are not condemned. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Number five, move forward. Get, go deeper with the Lord and don't look back. Get as close to him as possible. Number six, re-suit up. Put on the armor of God. Number seven, next time you're confronted with that same temptation, look down the road and see where it's going to lead you. You've gone down the same road a hundred times. You know where it leads you. Look down the road and ask yourself, do I want to go down that road again? Do I want to pay the price? Do I want to hit my head on the same dead end? Number eight, pray for five other people who you know are struggling in the same area right now and turn the temptation into an opportunity to pray for them. Number nine, remember that you are not alone. We all struggle with sin. And number 10 is run to Jesus. He understands. He can and he will help you. Father, I thank you for this precious congregation. I thank you for those who have come to visit today. I thank you that your word never comes back void. And I pray that you'd all, you draw all of us closer to you. With your head and heart bowed, if you're not a Christian today, you're not sure, God forbid, if you died tonight, you would be in heaven. Make sure. It's all based upon your trust in Jesus Christ. He loved you. He came into this world to die for you. He took your judgment at the cross. He rose to defeat death. And he's offering you salvation if you'll trust in him today. Repent of your sin and receive him as your Lord and your Savior.
Maybe you're a prodigal. Maybe you've been sitting on the fence. Maybe you've been running from God. And you're saying, Lord, I want to be effective in the race. I want to get up. I want to be dusted off. I want to heal. I want to run again. And do some business with the Lord right now. And if you've been running and maybe some spiritual warfare has come your way or you're just struggling, I pray the Lord will strengthen your run, your walk with him. I pray that you'd be renewed and refreshed and stay on track and serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand?